Lindy Kaiser, Senior Editor of ClearanceJobs.com, and welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Podcast. Today we're talking with Merton Miller. Mr. Miller is a retired colonel and federal agent with the Air Force's Office of Special Investigations and former senior executive with the Federal Investigative Service and the National Background Investigations Bureau. His most recent position was as Deputy Director for MBIB. He's also recently contributed several pieces to ClearanceJobs.com, including a post in April that suggested the executive branch may be considering a move to transfer all security clearance investigations over to the Department of Defense. Based on news reports, finally had an AP report come out about this a couple weeks ago, and also comments from defense officials and Department of Defense officials over the past several weeks. It seems to be that that move is going to happen. Again, Mr. Miller, thank you for taking the time to chat with us and for your expertise. You've written in, in the post that you did in April about some of the pitfalls or potential issues with the move to the Department of Defense. But now that that policy seems inevitable, at least from the people that are talking to us, do you have any thoughts on implementation and what we should expect moving forward when that executive order finally comes out? Well, Lindy, first, uh, thanks for having me on on the podcast. Appreciate participating in this. In response to your question, you know, from a planning implementation perspective, having done some planning in the past, you know, there's, you want to work with knowns and, and try to figure out the unknowns. And there's a number of things about the program that is currently known, you know, the backlog, uh, the workload that currently exists is known to the federal government and certainly to NBIB. I'm sure OMB and DOD. You know, the current uh, contractor and staffing numbers are pretty clear as to what they need in the future to be able to address the future workload and to address the backlog that's currently taking place. They currently know what the average time of this performance is for each of the investigations in the five-tier model, quite candidly far exceeding congressional time and standards. They're aware of the current cost and expenditure rate of the NBIB2 as a revolving fund. Along with what they know, there's some, I think, satisfaction the federal government can take in knowing that wherever the program is, they're going to have a group of dedicated and well-trained professionals in both NBIB and in the contract workforce that are very passionate and dedicated to this mission. The people is the most important thing about the transfer, making sure you keep them informed, that they understand what the future holds, not only for the program, but for them personally. And lastly, we also know, and these are the knowns I'm covering, is the government currently has a very robust and complete standards, federal investigative standards in place, as well as training standards and quality standards. Those are the knowns, uh, quite frankly. It's the unknowns that was really going to make implementation very, very difficult. You know, since the backlog was created, ODNI and DOD and others have been involved in changing and, and, quite frankly, walking back certain standards. If you looked at some of the uh, testimony that's occurred on the Hill, on one in particular, the Senate Intelligence Committee, you know, Gary Reed from DOD indicated that the future background investigations with the department will involve a reduction of field leads by over 90%. Now, having run the program for over six years, I can tell you some of the most critical information in the background investigative program comes from field leads. So that's an unknown. How are they going to change the standards to reduce field leads by over 90% and still not increase risk to the federal government? 
And, and oh, by the way, with those kind of statements going on, the real question probably and an unknown is, so what is the manpower needs to address not only the backlog today, but the future of the background investigations program? Now, one of the reasons backlog exists today is because there wasn't enough people to address the work coming in. There's a finite number of background investigators in the federal government. When the contract with USIS went away, the Federal Investigative Services lost 65% of their contract manpower. So they immediately went into a backlog situation. What they need to do today to address the backlog is actually to grow. But you can't grow federal staff and you can't grow contract staff when you have statements like from Gary Reed indicating that 90% of the field leads are going away. So what are you building on? What does the future hold? Uh, how are the standards going to change? Case in point, not only are standards changing, but they're all already walking back many of the recommendations that were made following the Navy Yard shooting. They have changed uh, the PR schedule for top secret from five to six years in my mind and in my view, increasing risk. They also did not implement the change of the 10-year secret PR to five years as they had planned to do. So they're already walking back standards. You also have another unknown factor and that's the IT automation. You know, they've bifurcated the process. They've given DOD the responsibility to build the new National Background Investigations System, NBIS. So by bifurcating it, they've got the primary mission OPM, they've got the IT being developed in DOD. And now with DOD taking over the entire program, the real question is gonna be, how does the rest of the federal government that DOD will be supporting? They've got a responsibility to support 95% of the federal government's background investigations with IT in the future. And how is that going to be responsive to the other federal agencies? And if you look at the history of a DOD having the program, first off, they haven't performed a background investigation in over 14 years. 30 years prior to the transfer to OPM, they were unable to address backlogs. They were unable to get a timeliness capability in place. And their IT was, quite frankly, ineffective. And it wasn't because of the people. I've always admired the people in the Defense Security Service. It was because the leadership within the department chose not to resource the program with people and money to address the workload that was coming into the Defense Security Service. Another one of the unknowns, I'll just bring up one more, and that is, you know, not only are they transferring DOD's work back to the department, which they have experience in managing that work, but were not effective. They're now giving DOD a program they've never managed, and that is not only managing the background investigation for the department, but now for the rest of the federal government. So, you know, there's a lot of risk. Uh, there's a lot of unknowns about the future of the background investigative program because, DOD is going to do something they haven't done effectively ever, but they haven't had in 14 years. And now they're going to be doing for the rest of the federal government without an IT system that they could effectively use. The unknowns are going to make the transition very, very difficult. Is there growth in staffing? Is there going to be future investment in IT at the level that's necessary? Is Congress going to hold DOD accountable for meeting not only investigative standards, but also timeliness and cost and quality standards. Those are all 
kind of questions the decision makers are deciding today, eventually there'll be an executive order making that transfer permanent that is relying on all these things, all these pieces to fall into place effectively in DOD to actually execute the mission. You bring up a great point with all of the moving pieces that we have here and how little we know about how things are going to get integrated. And the message you continue to hear from kind of everyone at the top and high level is that this is going to be a smooth transition. Everybody's going to work really well together. That seems to be a little bit different at that field office level. So you've spent a lot of time overseeing and working with background investigators. Do you have any thoughts on how DSS and NBIB will be merging their respective field offices? Any insights from how that transition looked 14 years ago? Things, lessons that they should learn from that? How do they go about incorporating kind of the work that's being done in disparate offices now and putting that all together. For example, as you mentioned, how should the field work? You know, there's 86 field offices today. Anyone doing the planning for the transfer back to DOD should definitely look at lessons learned from the 2004-2005 transfer of the DOD resources and in many cases facilities to the Federal Investigative Services to support the background investigative mission. But because I have no idea how DOD plans to do away with 90% of the field leads, how that would look from a resourcing perspective out in the field. Are 90% of the field staff, both contractor and feds, going to go away? You could definitely minimize the number of field offices that you'd have. We basically put our structure in the Federal Investigative Services in a region structure with oversights by GS-15s overseeing X number of field offices. That's all going to have to be worked through. And so that's impacted by the standards. That's impacted by changing policies on what the resources would be. One thing I want to bring up is... It's very, very difficult to plan when you really don't have any true anchors from a planning perspective. You know, uh, it's hard to change when everything is in motion and they're altering policy, they're altering standards. Uh, I think it, it becomes very, very difficult and very hard on the people. You know, I mean, morale, the folks are very, very dedicated, but, you know, you can only take so much turmoil and change and unknowns and it begins to impact people in the field. That's a great point. I've been working for clearance jobs for, for seven years now, and I think at the beginning you'd kind of think, oh, the security clearance process, we kind of joke that the framework that we're using has been in existence since 1947, and we've had we've been talking about security clearance reform since I started with clearance jobs, but I can't really say that any of those reforms have been fully implemented. But we have a lot of ideas <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, because you had back in, you know, back in, you know, closer to 10 years ago to, to five years ago, reciprocity was big, um, right. trying to make right. sure, you know, security clearance reciprocity happened. That's still an issue, especially yeah. for industry that brings up when as they want to move people around. Um, but we it, it doesn't seem like we fully figured it out. I mean, if because it's still an issue. So we have a lot of these. You know, and then you mentioned, you know, the kind of the recommendations that came out of the Navy Yard shooting, changing the processing time, reinvestigation timelines, tightening those. We haven't really done that. So it does create a lot of uncertainty with now you're proposing another level of completely overhauling things. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the reasons we find ourselves where we are today, not not the backlog piece of it, that's nothing but a math problem. You know, the fact that you didn't have the man hours to address the workload because we had a model in place. It wasn't perfect by any means. 
But we had a model in place that was, you know, delivering background investigations, you know, top secret in 77 days, secret in 28 days, costs, you know, were flat. And oh, by the way, we put standards in place, new federal investigative standards. And why do we need new ones? Because the old ones weren't as complete as the community wanted. We spent three years developing the new federal investigative standards. And then we took another four years to begin to fully implement those standards. So it was definitely a step in the right direction. We put training standards in place across the federal government. It wasn't just one agency or two. We had standards that everyone that did training had to meet for both security, for background investigators, as well as security and suitability adjudicators. And lastly, and I remember testifying on the Hill to this, we put quality standards in place because in the past, you know, I, I jokingly told the folks on the Hill, you know, quality was in the eyes of the beholder. Uh, you know, th there wasn't a standard. I said, you give me a standard, you know, that we all can apply across the federal government equally, and we'll do that. And oh, by the way, we did that. So, you know, th th these folks that say we're still using the same methodology and all that from the 50s, that is absolutely not true. You, you look at the automation uh, that, that's in place today. Basically, secret investigations are almost totally automated unless there's a serious issue that's developed that requires a subject interview. That didn't exist in the 1950s. Come on. It's not necessarily the program that has the shortfalls. For instance, as a co-chair of the Record Access Task Force, we identified several key issues relative to records, criminal history record information, that needed to be improved on. Because why? The federal government, the state government, and local government all rely on those records to make important decisions about hiring, about vetting, and giving people a clearance. But there's still huge, huge gaps in those records. You know, when I left NBIB, we had 24 states that were fully automated for criminal history record information, either through inlets or through a statewide system. The other states required agents in the field to go into local and state law enforcement entities and sometimes courts to actually obtain those records because they weren't in inlets or they weren't in a statewide system. When I was with Federal Investigative Services and NBIB, we automated through a number of processes, but we automated when we could automate. When I left, we had just automated three additional states that saved the government $2.4 million because those leads were now done in an automated format versus having boots on the ground. You got to take these baby steps to improve the program. And what's happened is you get people that get the ear of leadership and they tell them, they tell them a great story. You can do all of this. You can Google search and get somebody's background investigation. You know, those, these kind of things. And you would think the way things are today, you know, you'd be able to do more in the way of automation. But what people don't question is what's the availability, completeness of those records themselves. And oh, by the way, are they valid? You know, there's a lot of bad information out there. And I can Google search anybody and find information that is totally false about them. Do they just want me to cut and paste it into a background investigation, let an adjudicator deal with it? I used to jokingly talk to my senior staff, you know, when people would have these ideas about background investigations, which we would embrace, we had, we called the uh, implementers fatigue. In other words, it's easy to make a recommendation, but taking it through the process and then subsequently implementing it is a whole different story than just suggesting it. And I agree with you, Lindy. I mean, there's been a lot of talk. There's a lot of people out there who says you can do this and you can do that. Well, why hasn't it been done?
I mean, we had, you know, security clearance reform that involved DOD and DNI and a number of other federal agencies, you know, could bring the best and brightest. We could benchmark anything that's happening in commercial world and across the federal government. Why weren't these things implemented? It wasn't because people didn't want to implement it. It was because once the reality of a suggestion to implementation was realized, they could say, you know, you can't really do this. Think about it. There's jokes made about the length of time it takes to change the SF-86. One question on the SF-86, you know, took a year and a half, two years. Well, that, that wasn't the matter of programming it. That was a matter of getting it through the general councils of the world and coordinating across the entire federal government and getting Congress on board. I mean, those are the long poles in the tent to rapid change. As you talk about this, it's kind of interesting to think about the field structure that we might have as this happens. The transfer of things over to DOD, do you think there'll be more of a push to... They've said it shouldn't require more staff changes as far as hiring. certainly wonder... Will they keep the same proportion of federal government and contract investigators? Thoughts on the field office structure there? You touched on that a little bit. The staffing footprint uh, will be dictated by the basis of the background investigations. If the standards change, if they no longer do neighborhood checks or they no longer go out and, and do multiple reference checks or they stop doing some of these other critical field leads, you don't need the man hours and you don't need the people to do them. However, my r major concern about this transfer beyond the people, I'm, I'm really concerned about the staffing is how much do they dumb down the background investigation itself, you know, to get it faster and cheaper, not better. Better's being left in the dark because that's what the new standards was all about. So they, they want to get it faster and cheaper, and which, again, from my view, increases a risk to all those agencies out there that are going to get incomplete uh, information. If you only do criminal history records, so you already heard me describe that. If you're only doing criminal history checks in an automated environment, you're going to miss 50% of criminal history record information out there on people you're doing background checks on. I'm hoping that as the transition begins and leadership begins to pay attention to really what the impacts are going to be before we have another Aaron Alexis or another Snowden or another bishop, you know, uh, Benjamin Bishop, who was identified through a neighborhood check and uh, having an ongoing, you know, relationship with a Chinese PRC IO and was giving secrets about the Pacific to the Chinese. That was during a PR, a reinvestigation, and it was a neighborhood check. It wasn't an automated record check uh, that identified this individual who was subsequently prosecuted and jailed for espionage. It was a neighborhood check where the neighbor told the agent he's got a Chinese girlfriend. <laughs> Nobody had mentioned that. He certainly didn't put it on his SF-86. People at work weren't aware of it. And so, you know, those kind of critical leads, I mean, how long, how much more damage could he have done if we were in the new world of what DOD plans to do and potentially do away with all neighborhood checks? There's a lot of risk and uncertainty about what the future holds, not only about how much staffing you need, how many man hours you're going to need to do the work, what the end result is. What are you actually delivering to the customer to make an adjudicated decision? So in the white paper you wrote for clearance jobs, the state of the security clearance process, you discussed some of the history that led to the backlogs and delays we're in today. It wasn't a single issue or one-off that led it. There were a few missteps, I guess you could say. 
that brought us to where we're at. Within that, you also had some recommendations for things that could be done to help improve the process. So kind of as we're embarking on this change movement right now, could you walk through a few of those things that you you discussed? What still applies as we consider the move to DOD or, or what might be done differently? When uh, the, the White House initiated a 120-day review to look at the background investigative program and they were debating about what the new structure should look at uh, look like. The deputies, the folks attending the deputies meeting, went through a number of different scenarios. Should we move it all to DOD? Should we leave it in OPM? Should we split, you know, and put IT in DOD and and uh, leave the uh, background investigative mission in OPM? The one recommendation that everybody agreed with was to stand up an independent agency across the federal government that would be solely responsible for background investigations. It's a critical national security program and really should be centralized under one independent, meaning objectivity of the background investigations, the way they're conducted, shouldn't belong in an agency itself. It should be separate and distinct. And so the only reason the independent agency wasn't pursued, uh, as described to us, was that the last administration uh, didn't have enough time left to get the legislation put in place and to get it uh, approved on the Hill. So that's when they went to Plan 1A, and that was to give DOD IT and give uh, you know OPM the the and, and to stand up the National Background Investigative Bureau. But if you were to stand up a government-wide background investigative program, independent agency, you'd be doing a number of things other than just the objectivity. You you could have an agency that focused solely on uh, safeguarding and advancing the government-wide government governance control and performance accountability relative to background investigations. You could ensure program costs are appropriate, are balanced, and are transparent to all federal agencies so they understand where their money is going. You could, you know, put one plan in place to deliver a program-wide IT strategy and outline what those system requirements uh, and the system development is for that program. And again, it would support, the, it'd be centralized, supporting the entire federal government. You could continue to advance standards for centralizing information collection, documentation, and records management. What I mean by that is we would study the results we would get from inlet searches on all states, and we would compare those to what was what we were obtaining via field leads with agents. And we would know uh, from a percentage perspective, you know, whether or not you're getting 99.9% of the criminal history record from the automated record search or whether you're only getting 60%. That agency, the independent agency, would be responsible for finding the best, most complete sources of criminal history record information, financial information, other background information that's relevant uh, for an adjudicative determination and continue to build and improve on that. There's no reason for having multiple agencies in the federal government all pursuing records through an automated record check process and going to different sources because each source is going to have their pros and their cons. You want to have the best possible and by centralizing those you would do that. We've been, you know, uh, DOD's been working on a automated record check process for, for years, quite frankly. And, and, and in fact, the DNI for continuous evaluation has been working, hasn't delivered it yet, but has been also working on filling a rec automated record process. Why is the government competing with itself? 
you know, why are we not centralizing this and making sure we get the best uh, of all versus versus competing with one another? And one last thing, you know, when you look at the structure, validation, and integration of automated record checks and align investigative activities to those to support government-wide continuous evaluation, you could put CE, which again has not been effectively implemented across the federal government, you could give that responsibility to that independent agency. So when you identify between reinvestigations, when you identify through continuous evaluation, somebody has a new criminal history record check or they just filed for bankruptcy or you know there's another incident that's an issue that needs to be resolved, that CE information can be then documented in that individual's background investigative file. And by the way, is then available for review for reciprocity purposes. Today, even though DOD is doing some continuous evaluation, the results of those CE searches are not available to anybody except DOD. So if somebody leaves the Department of Defense and goes to you know, agriculture or goes to treasury, that information uh, that they obtain through CE, it may even be criminal history record information, is not in that individual's background file. So reciprocity is going to be impacted because we, again, are bifurcating continuous evaluation versus centralizing it across the federal government. So, you know, an agency that's sole purpose is to focus on all aspects of background investigation from improving standards, improving quality, improving training, you know, and, and to do that right, you have to improve on how you can better deliver investigations through better training and, and quality. I mean, there's continuous improvement should be the focus of that independent agency for background investigations. So why is there no chatter about moving the process over to live under ODNI? If everybody has an issue with OPM, I know DOD is pushing to have its own investigations. Because that is one thing I find coming out of the GAO reports is you do have a lot of kind of conflicting a lot of people are waiting for guidance from ODNI that doesn't necessarily come. DOD can create all the policies at once. If ODNI doesn't codify it, then how does that really improve things? You know, that's the relationship uh, that's critical, but I think will be lost because once DOD has everything, the staffing, they'll be doing the policy, they'll be doing the IT. You know, I, I really think it will marginalize the ODNI's role as a security executive agent relative to background investigation. In fact, if you look at what's happening today, I am a little disappointed that the ODNI hasn't had a stronger role in ensuring that despite the backlog, the standards must be met versus allowing the standards to be walked back. You know, risk in in national security that occurs. I, you know, anybody who's worked in in D.C. knows. You know, DOD is a, a a very. I mean, I spent 26, actually 30 years serving within the Department of Defense. I love DOD. I love the mission. There's no more passionate group of people in the world than Department of Defense and the people that serve our country. But there are those individuals, you know, within the department that see themselves as being able to perform any role in any mission. And back when the Intelligence Reform Terrorism Prevention Act uh, came out, the DEPSECDEF at the time, when the transfer occurred, basically stated that background investigations is not a core mission of the Department of Defense. I still agree with that statement. 
It's not. We're there to train, fight wars, and win wars, not to conduct background investigations for the entire federal government. That, that's not the role. Does DOD need background investigations? Absolutely. Do they need it to align with their insider threat program? And do they need continuous evaluation to oversee the performance of their workforce? Absolutely. You know, they do. To own it all, and again, a, a mission that they have not effectively performed in the last 14 years and actually were on the high risk list when it transferred. You know, there's a lot of, lot of people, you know, betting on a horse, you know, that hasn't proven itself. And that puts the program more at risk. Was there anything else related to this potential transfer that you think would be worth bringing up? I would ask that, you know, people who maybe agree with a few of the things that I've said, you know, would uh, let their leadership, you know, know that, uh, you know, once the decision is made, it's going to be a very difficult uh, process to change. I think it's going to be very difficult because the program is already at a disadvantage because of the backlog and the lack of resources. And just the way the program is developing now, so many unknowns, you know, it's very hard to build a stable program in that environment. Maybe the new administration could think about an independent agency and create it. I understand they're getting ready to announce a major change in basically the organization of the federal government, the executive branch. So maybe it's something they could consider. I've been waiting for this executive order for, you know, a few months now. So it seems like clearly they're they're taking their time. So so we'll see what happens. And, you know, I've heard a few things about inevitably going to be in it, but without having seen it yet, possible to know. And just goes to show how much of this process is born out of executive order. So really all it takes is that is that notification from the White House, and that can have pretty major policy implications for how things are structured. Well, you look at you look at the changes the program has gone through in just the last couple of years. You know the uh, the backlog. There wasn't a lot of support for the Federal Investigative Services when the decision was made to cut the contract workforce. They weren't given the resources or the money. And the backlog grew, and then you had the 120-day review, and then there was a decision, you know, that we're going to kind of bifurcate the process, leave investigations within OPM, but move the IT to DOD because of the breach that occurred at OPM. You have National Defense Authorization Act come out, and now they're moving all of DOD's work back to the department. And now you've got a potential executive order coming out, moving it all to DOD. Try to plan for the future under those circumstances over the last couple years years. I mean, it's it's a credit to the people that are out in the field conducting these leads and conducting these investigations every day today that they continue to do this work. You know, I, re- I really admire them, you know, with so much unknown out there. So for me, the biggest issue, we have a huge audience at clearance jobs of background investigators, specifically that participate in our blog and forum. And that is, I feel like a workforce that has faced low morale for really the past couple of years. And this process could certainly make that worse. That's my biggest concern. And what that means for the ability to retain and hire new background investigators. Timeliness is the biggest issue. I think everybody loves to talk about the backlog and I honestly say, like, I never really care about that number, but I keep seeing, especially the DOD industry processing times number has grown up to where, I mean, I don't ever remember seeing it take 533 days to process a a new TS investigation. We're at that now. If you can't retain the background investigators you have, and if they get sick, you know, as this merger happens, if that's not handled well at the field level and you lose a bunch of investigators 
like you wrote about, like happened with USIS, it's hard to imagine that the processing times could get worse. But if you disrupt that investigator workforce much more, I feel like it could get worse before it gets better. I couldn't agree more, Lindy, with with what you just said. You know, with so many doubts out there and the idea, again, I'll bring it up, 90% of the field leads are going to go away. What industry partner out there, knowing knowing uh, the the man man hour requirement today is going to invest. Our best guess was in talking with our industry partners, it cost about twenty five thousand dollars to groom, you know, onboard, hire, train, and put to work, you know, a new background investigator. You know, and then oh by the way, it would take six months to a year actually to get them, you know, to a state where they can work independently and that there wasn't a lot of mentoring and oversight occurring. Not knowing what the future holds, who's going to invest that kind of money to build a workforce that may, under DOD's watch, go away? No one is going to do that. Again, the backlog, it's, it's nothing but a math problem. We know it takes 44 and a half man hours on average to conduct you know, a tier five or top secret investigation. We, we know that. We did a time study. So you look at the workload and you, you can compute out what the man hours are for that. But what it doesn't describe for you, and, and, and by the way, it tells you what your man hour shortfall is in people in the field to actually conduct these leads. So, so that's pretty easy. You can figure that all out. In fact, I presented that numerous times to the senior leadership of what we needed to onboard to get caught up and then how long it would take us to catch up. When the program transferred from DOD uh, in 0405 to OPM, it took OPM four years to clear the DOD backlog, four, four years of steady hiring. They ended up having over 8,000 people, you know, working background investigations. You would know exactly what the man hour requirements were to actually do the work. But what a lot of people don't recognize is if I submit, like you mentioned, 533 days for a top secret. Well, trust me, when you submit that SF-86, they don't begin working it right away. Yes, the NAC checks, the National Agency checks, the automated checks are done. But the field leads can lay idle for a year and a half before they pick those up. So when you finally get the investigation, the NAC leads are already outdated by a year and a half. Think about it. The criminal history record check that you did on that case, and now you're performing the field leads, are at least a year old, which means they're not current. In a lot of cases, the field folks have to go back to the subject to have them update their SF-86 because it's been pending for a year and a half. And a lot of things change. People can change jobs. They can get married. They can have family. They can change their residence. They can complete school. They can do foreign travel. I can go on and on and on about the changes that occur in a year and 18 months. That becomes even more difficult because there's a lot of gaps in the process because it's not as efficient as it used to be. 28 days, 77 days versus now you know, a year and a half or more. Yeah. Uh, it, it really makes things very, very difficult. Yeah, my, my husband is my best uh, resource when it comes to this stuff because he works, he's a contractor, and he went through the process, and I'm always, like, testing out his timelines. And he did. He submitted his PR, and it took, it was nearly two years before he got contacted for his interview after the after he submitted his updated yeah. SF-86 to his FSO. Talk about kind of a waste of field work. That's you're, you're making your investigator's job a lot harder. You're redoing automated leads. You're redoing leads in the field, you know, because, because of that delay. You know, by the way, you know, we talk about the change, uh, you know, to the Navy Yard, right? We want, we've moved it from five to six years. Well, in reality, they're submitting their paperwork, as you just said, in six years. But they're not getting the PR done 
until eight years. So think about yeah. it. I mean, we have expanded that time where somebody, somebody with top secret access is not going through an additional investigative update for, for potentially eight years. I, you know, I don't know about you, but, uh, that, that's, that's not acceptable. You know, where back in 14, when it was 77 days and 28 days, I think our PRs were being done in about 112 days. So, uh, you know, you got to have the resources. You know, you want to build a thousand cars. You can't put uh, 10 people on the line knowing you need 150 to actually build a thousand cars. That's, and that's, that's what happened. And, and the federal government just waited really through 2015. I mean, uh, uh, they waited all through 2015 and part of 2016 before they began to allow us to address the uh, resource shortfall. And a lot of people had actually left background investigators. A lot of the contractors had actually, you know, left. They went and found other jobs. And I'll tell you, if I was in the market for a job today, I wouldn't look, even though I've got a little experience in conducting investigations, I wouldn't want to be a background investigator, not with all this turmoil. for listening to this episode of the Security Clearance Podcast. Please visit news.clearancejobs.com for more security clearance news, insights, and information. Have a great day.